This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight. After the war, Europe was rebuilt because America put up big money to rebuild Europe. Africa has never got that opportunity in terms of a Marshall Plan to build our economies and all that. That's former Ghana's President John Mahama talking about the need for a Marshall Plan for Africa. Details coming up also. Among the big topics being discussed at the annual IMF World Bank meeting is the global economic growth outlook. The U.S. joined five other nations today in calling for a halt to hostilities in northern Ethiopia and 31 culturally precious objects were returned to the Nigerian government by U.S. museums yesterday. We have these stories on African News Tonight. But first, our top story. A bronze sculpture of a West African king that had been in the collection of a Rhode Island museum for more than 70 years was among 31 culturally precious objects that were returned to the Nigerian government yesterday. The Benin bronzes, including a piece called the Head of a King, or Oba, from the Rhode Island School of Design Museum, were transferred to the Nigerian National Collections during a ceremony at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. The pieces were stolen by the British in the late 19th century. The repatriation is part of a worldwide movement by cultural institutions to return artifacts that were often stolen during colonial wars. VOA's Douglas Mpuga reached out to Professor Sati Fouad-Shak, a professor of history and international studies at the University of Jos, Nigeria, for his reaction. Yeah, for me, it's uh, like a dream fulfilled because uh, Nigerians and I believe many other African countries have been struggling to ensure that uh, their cultures and civilizations that were stolen by acts of colonialism and other processes are returned. So uh, this struggle has been on for some time now, and I am, as a person, and I believe many Nigerians will be extremely excited at this development because it means that their struggles have not been in vain, and their cultural reciprocities will be back to them, and they bring back memories of how they were done, they bring back memories of what they stand for, they bring back memories of their implications. So for me, it's a very happy moment, and I'm quite excited at it. These artifacts uh, across Africa were looted in the, in the 19th century, almost 100 years ago. What should be done to make sure that most of them are returned to where they came from? I think all of them have identities. The cultural community that made them will identify their owners. So we have uh, a department of museums and cultures. We have the Ministry of Culture and Tourism. So I believe that once they, it comes to, into the hands of government, they should now invite all the relevant committees for them to identify uh, what rightfully belongs to their own culture because it should be returned to the rightful owners and not be uh, appropriated by government without their content. Of course, maybe the committees might decide that they should be in our national uh, museums of uh, museums, 
But that, should, that decision should be, be made by the owners rather than by the government taking a unilateral decision. Of course, um, many of the artifacts, many of the cultural uh, representations, expressions of our people are in various museums approximate or in proximity to where they were made. Like um, in just for example, there is the National Museum, and it has most of the collections from the central Nigerian area. So I believe that uh, Lagos, Benin, and other places have museums. But then, as I said, the conversation should start with the owners and let them make the decision of where they want it to be, rather than the government just keeping it without uh, the consent of the people. Yeah, there have been uh, some artifacts returned in the recent past. Do you think this move will pick up and more of these will be returned because there are still a lot of them in, in Europe and America that ought to go back? Yeah, I believe that if those who have them are very sure that uh, the rightful owners will receive them, they will now return them because they are not like monies that people will come and uh, reloot easily. Uh, for, for, for these things to be reloaded, uh, the market has to be found, the connections have to be established. So unlike monies where there's doubt as to whether they will get into the right hands, these have, as I said, markers, and once it is recognized that it belongs to a community, the community should make a decision. And once um, those who hold them are very convinced that it will return to the original owners for them to make the decision, more will come back. Just as we have been recovering uh, a batch loot, so also most of these will be recovered when there is trust that it will get to the rightful owners. And I believe that the owners will be quite excited to receive them. That was Satif Wadshak, a professor of history and international studies at the University of Jost, Nigeria, speaking with VOA's Douglas Mpuga. At the World Bank and IMF meetings going on this week in Washington, among the big topics being discussed is the global economic growth outlook, which does not look very healthy. The World Economic Outlook, released this morning, predicts global growth to slow from 6.0% in 2021 to 3.2% in 2022 and 2.7% in 2023. It said the gloomy forecast was shaped by three power forces, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the cost of living crisis caused by persistent and broadening inflation pressures, and the slowdown in China. At a news conference, IMF economist Daniel Lay highlighted a long list of factors causing financial stress in the Horn of Africa region, in addition to high debt levels and a strengthening U.S. dollar. It is a, a region very severely affected by the war in Ukraine. The food, fuel and fertilizer price spike uh, is, is uh, having a negative effect on agriculture and, and a broad part of the economy. On top of that, this is one of the parts of the world where the COVID uh, shock is still really uh, severe in terms of the very low vaccination rates, 26% only. Um, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa compared to 66% in the rest of the world. Only 2% uh, have a booster uh, compared to a third to a half in the rest of the world. So uh, on top of that, the global slowdown uh, means less demand for the, the products of the region. And then on top of that, the higher interest rates, low growth means that two-thirds of the countries in the regions are facing uh, stress or debt distress. So this is... Um, why the 
the attention here uh, is is very much on providing relief, also uh, in, in terms of supporting the common framework to avoid uh, the debt crisis from spreading. That was IMF economist Daniel Lay. I also spoke with Jonas Gamso, PhD, an assistant professor of international trade and global studies at Arizona State University's Thunderbird School of Global Management. His teachings include principles of global management, states and markets in the global economy, international trade and regional economic agreements, and global affairs methods. I first asked the professor to explain some of the key factors behind the global slowdown. Yeah, so as you said, the global growth outlook does not look good, and this has been uh, highlighted in the World Bank IMF meetings this week. And this reflects several factors that are connected to each other. They're, they're not independent of one another. First of all, high inflation and high oil prices in particular. High prices are going to lead to reductions in demand and also reductions in employment. So that's the first factor. Second factor, which is again related to the first, is um, high and growing interest rates that are raising borrowing costs. And then uh, a third major factor, and this is is, uh, particularly true for uh, emerging markets, is a strong U.S. dollar. So strong. So for, for goods that are denominated in dollars, those goods are going to be more expensive. As a result, things are going to be more expensive. Trade is going to be more costly. Um, and this is an impediment to growth, particularly in emerging markets, but, but also in places potentially like China and the EU. So what, what could this mean for uh, African governments? African countries have, there's been sort of a, a positive um, uh, sentiment about the growth trajectory for African countries. And, and that could continue to be the case, but these things are definitely going to put pressures on African countries. And, and potentially, they could lead to unemployment, they could lead to the exacerbation of uh, hunger, um, which is already in, in a state of crisis. And of course, this could have sort of effects uh, down the stream in terms of social unrest, political unheaval, uh, etc. There could be significant uh, impacts for African countries, and there will almost certainly be some impacts on African countries, because again, trade, foreign investment, and foreign aid are all likely to decrease uh, if the US, China, and or the EU fall into a recession. So what should uh, African governments do to kind of uh, uh, avoid what all these pitfalls you're just mentioning? The first thing that they should do is to try to identify alternative markets for investment and trade. So uh, forming uh, free trade agreements, forming bilateral investment treaties uh, with, with partners, trying to uh, ramp up the implementation of the Africa-wide uh, free trade agreement. Uh, those are all things that can reduce transaction costs on trade and investment so that even if there is pressure for these things to, to decline, maybe the reduction in transaction costs uh, will, will offset it a bit. And then identifying new markets so that if the U.S., China and the EU fall into recession, there are alternative uh, buyers of African goods, alternative sources of investment. And this doesn't have to come from outside of Africa. Uh, again, there, there is this uh, African trade agreement that creates an avenue for more uh, internal trade and internal foreign investment. So that would be one thing that I would uh, encourage African governments to prioritize. And the other thing, unfortunately, is prepare, sort of prepare for the worst, right? Prepare for recession. Now, hopefully that won't happen, uh, but better to be prepared, right? So uh, get resources in place to provide domestic stimulus if necessary. And obviously that's going to be easier for some countries than others. And then if you know, get the ball rolling on restructuring debts to prevent defaults. And traditionally, it's been with the IMF and the World Bank uh, that, that uh, countries have had 
high levels of debt and, and um, taken opportunities to restructure that debt. But now it's kind of an interesting dynamic because uh, China is, a, is a, a large lender. And with Belt and Road Initiative, uh, there are African countries that have borrowed quite a lot from uh, China for large infrastructure projects. And so trying to restructure those debts is, is sort of a new challenge, figuring out uh, how to work with um, China to prevent uh, those debts from getting out of control and uh, from uh, creating uh, defaults potentially. So those are the two things I would highlight. Look for alternative markets and prepare for the worst. Hopefully the worst won't happen, but better to be prepared. That was Jonas Gamso, PhD and Assistant Professor of International Trade and Global Studies at Arizona State University's Thunderbird School of Global Management, speaking with me by phone from the U.S. state of Arizona. Former president of Ghana, John Mahama, says he'd like to see Western countries develop a Marshall Plan for Africa like the United States program that helped Europe's economic recovery from World War II. He spoke to the host of Straight Talk Africa, Heidi Adams, during a visit to Washington recently. I think that it's a period of adversity for the whole world because it's um, triggering a kind of global recession. Um, China and Russia and I don't know which other countries appear to be on one side and then the whole Western world is also on the other side. Already um, in Africa, if we need um, funding for infrastructure, big infrastructure projects, the place to go is China uh, and the East. Um, Normally the Western countries would invest in the social sector, in education, in healthcare, and things like that, but not big infrastructural uh, projects. I'll make an exception for the Millennium Compact, which uh, President Bush introduced, and which Ghana has benefited from twice. But normally, if you want to do a bridge or a road or a railway or something, often you'll go to to the east. Um, At the last G7, um, the Western countries uh, talked about a $600 Uh, a a fund to assist Africa and other developing countries in terms of infrastructure. I know that the United States has put up the uh, DFC, I think it's a DFC, and they've committed about $100 billion uh, to uh, assist countries in critical infrastructure projects. So it's an opportunity for us to uh, benefit in terms of improving our infrastructure. But at the same time, it's an opportunity for us to look within and see what we can do better in terms of trading amongst ourselves. Happily, we've passed the African Continental Free Trade Area. And as I speak, the first commodities are beginning to be exchanged. Um, A shipment of tiles from Ghana, I read this morning, is going to Rwanda. And a shipment of tea is coming from Kenya uh, to to Ghana. I mean, that's good news. I mean, we've been advocates of this for so long. We're happy it's happening now. 11% trained amongst ourselves. That's... It's, 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 it's ridiculous. And so we are hoping that this can push trade between ourselves even to 50% so that we're able to multiply the benefits within the continent, but also uh, get benefits from outside. Africa never got a Marshall Plan. After the war, Europe was rebuilt because America put up big money to rebuild Europe. Africa has never got that opportunity in terms of a Marshall Plan to build our economies and all that. Do you think Africa... Should ha- there should be a Marshall Plan? Yes, after Africa. slavery. After slavery, I think there should be a Marshall Plan. I mean, slavery affected the continent very adversely. And um, I do believe that 
um, if a Marshall Plan was put up, you know, and we got the right leadership on the continent, and we do the kinds of things we're doing, trading, building the infrastructure on the continent, we can create a, a decent existence for our people. I have confidence that Africa is the next, you know, uh, emerging continent, and it's going to be the next uh, frontier for investment and business. That, that was former president of Ghana, John Mahama, speaking with my colleague, Heidi Adams. You can see more of this interview on VOA's Straight Talk Africa program and on voaafrica.com. Chad's military leader, Mohamed Idris Debi Etno, promised in a recent speech to work to meet deadlines for the return to constitutional order. He urged political and military groups to choose peace and national harmony and promised to release all prisoners of war in exchange for a ceasefire and dialogue. Debi's speech came before his government named opposition politician Saleh Kebzobo, the new prime minister. That announcement today came four days after a national sovereign inclusive dialogue said military leader Mohamed Idris Debi Etno would serve as the transitional president and will govern for two years until elections are held. Cameron Hudson is a senior associate at Africa Program Center for Strategic and International Studies. He discussed with VOA senior analyst Mohamed Al Shanawi the conditions that Chadian opposition has listed in response to Debbie's calls for unity. I think the the biggest threat to President Debbie now uh, is the same threat that his father faced, which is an armed opposition movement that could overthrow uh, the government. Um, And again, we've seen a history of armed opposition movements uh, across this region seeking to overthrow the government in in N'Djamena. So it makes entirely a lot of sense that uh, President Debbie would would make this offer, uh, ask uh, groups to come in and choose national harmony. But again, these these groups have stipulated that they won't do that unless a number of other conditions are met, namely that the that the military not present itself in upcoming elections. And so I think in order for the military to get what it wants, it's going to have to give a little. And we've seen very little indication that President Debbie is interested in making a lot of concessions uh, to these groups. President Debbie appealed to political parties and civil groups that boycotted the national dialogue to back efforts aimed at unity of the country. He said, I would like to remind them that the dialogue is a continuous process aimed to build a nation that brings us together at all times. You can join the process in the interest of our common future. That's what he said. Would the opposition agree to do that? Well, again, it's it's like the same situation with the armed uh, opposition movements, where the civilian opposition has, has made a certain number of uh, of demands as well, namely that the military will not seek to run in future elections. Again, I think there's a trust issue involved here where none of the principal opposition groups, armed or unarmed in the country, uh, have any faith that the military uh, is interested in anything other than securing its own hold on power, power over the political process, the economy, the choice public uh, jobs in the country. And so until the, the military begins to demonstrate, not just through its words, but through its deeds, that it is serious about allowing 
uh, opponents in, giving them a measure of, of authority, uh, and that the military and the Zagawa tribe, which controls it, is in fact willing to concede its control over certain parts of the country. I don't think you're going to have that trust established with opposition groups, and I think it's going to be very difficult to imagine a scenario where credible opposition uh, joins in this sort of national dialogue in the future, unless and until the military is sincere in its statements and is ready to demonstrate that it's willing to give up power. That was Cameron Hudson, a senior associate at African Program Center for Strategic and International Studies, speaking with VOA's Mohamed Al-Shinawi. As Ebola cases rise in Uganda, the International Rescue Committee, or IRC, has launched a response to mitigate further spread of the disease. As of Monday, there were 48 confirmed cases, 37 deaths, and 14 recoveries, according to Elia Okeo, IRC country director in Uganda. He tells VOA's Carol Van Dam the IRC is working closely with district health teams in Uganda to strengthen surveillance of the deadly virus. We also work with directly at the health facilities and with the community to improve infection prevention and control to ensure that health staff are protected, but also the community members are protected through effective IPC measures. There are several districts where uh, they are not ranked as uh, high risk, and what we do in those districts is uh, preparedness. I want to know about the frontline workers. We've heard stories that some of them have complained that they don't have even gloves. They don't have adequate protection. What's going on with that? I would say that the Ministry of Health has tried to contain this uh, current outbreak. There's significant attempt to cut the spread. Resources have been trickling in. Um, However, as you said, um, there are needed uh, additional resources in the area of the PPE to continue to support because um, as health facilities manage the suspected cases, um, they will need to treat them as as a case. So every case that passes through them, they have to have proper protective equipment uh, with them. And uh, this can get depleted very fast if there is, um, as of now, there are a high number of uh, cases that uh, uh, are suspected uh, when they go through the entire process is when some are confirmed, some are, are negative. What are some of that protective gear that they need and that they're using? Some of the items like gum boots uh, are required, the coveralls are required uh, for infection prevention and control, uh, items like jig, chlorine are required, the entire range of protective equipment for the health staff. And where are some of these more high awareness areas that you were referring to? We have uh, five high risk districts where we've we have confirmed cases. So this include uh, Mubende, which is the epicenter of the current outbreak. Uh, it has the highest number of cases. Then we have another district called Chegegwa. Then we have another one called Kasanda, then Kagadi, and then the last one is uh, Bunyagabu. Uh, a lot of contracts, uh, contacts are being followed in those districts to contain the spread of, of the virus. But also the neighboring districts are um, moderate risk um, and uh, preparedness and alertness is equally very important in those other districts. As far as you know, 
no Ebola cases have traveled, you know, suspected cases have traveled then outside of Uganda to neighboring no, countries? No, 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 not that we know. We do have the daily CTRIPS uh, on the, the case status, so we've not had any case outside of Uganda. That was Eli Okio, IRC Country Director in Uganda. He was speaking with my colleague, Carol Van Dam. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yeheyes Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, Cedric Franklin, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.